thing to be with us, whether I'm here or not, but I am especially glad when I get to be here and, and he's leading us in worship. If you will grab a Bible and turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 34. <clears throat> Different than what many of you might think, our series has not been a series through the book of Exodus. It has been a series about the life of Moses. And so you may be like, why aren't we in Exodus? We were in Numbers last week. This week we will be in Deuteronomy 34 for the bulk of our time um, and looking at the death of Moses. The servant of the Lord is going to die. Before we jump in there to Deuteronomy 34, I want to go back a little bit and look at Deuteronomy 32 because we're kind of being dropped into this story with not a lot of context about what's happened up until this point. And so in Deuteronomy 32, I'm going to read for us just the last few verses of that chapter. On the same day, the Lord spoke to Moses, go up Mount Nebo in the Abarim range in the land of Moab across from Jericho and view the land of Canaan. I am giving the Israelites as a possession. Then you will die on the mountain that you go up. And you will be gathered to your people just as your brother Aaron died on Mount Hor and was gathered to his people. For both of you broke faith with me among the Israelites at the waters of Meribah Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zin, by the failing to treat me as holy in their presence. Although from a distance you will view the land that I am giving the Israelites, you will not go there. So before we come to the death of Moses in chapter 34 of Deuteronomy, we, we have to understand what's going on. Why is Moses dying here? Why is he not going to get to go into the land that God has promised to the Israelites? Why is he going to get to see it, but the Lord has told him, you're going to die on this mountain? Um, and to understand that, we have to go all the way back to a story in Numbers chapter 20. Um, last week, we were in Numbers 21, where uh, Moses holds up the bronze snake for the people to be saved after they've grumbled against God. And in Numbers chapter 20, shock of all shocks, the Israelites are grumbling against God again and against Moses, his servant. And they're mad because they have no water, nothing to eat. They're mad at Moses for bringing them out into the wilderness. And they say, why can't we just go back to Egypt? Why did you ever bring us out of Egypt into this place? Just to die here in the wilderness. And they're angry at Moses and what they're really angry and who they're really angry at is the Lord. And if we're honest with ourselves, we do the same thing. We like to look at the Israelite story and criticize them for all their grumbling and complaining as we read through um, these stories of the miraculous things that God has done to bring them out of slavery. And we're like, how dare you grumble against the Lord and want to go back to slavery in Egypt? But so often we're the same. We complain and we cry out for the Lord to remove us from a current circumstance that is hard and and then he moves us out of that circumstance into something different. And then we're like, man, you remember those, those good old days back when we were, you know, in that other circumstance that we wanted out of then? And right now, if you're like into pop culture and, and you watch current TV shows, everything is nostalgic, right? Everything is, is aimed at children of the 80s and the 90s. And they tug on our hearts because we view those decades through rose-colored glasses and we think, oh, if life were just like it was 
in the 80s or in the 90s. If we could just go back there, we were just like the Israelites. Because things back then weren't great. I was listening to a podcast just a couple of weeks ago, and, and they were talking about all of the different world uh, wars and the things that were going on in the 80s and 90s and all the turmoil and culture and chaos and all this stuff. And they were like, it really wasn't better then. But we have this tendency to clean up our past because the current situation we don't like. And we're just like Israel. So Israel complains against Moses and Aaron for bringing them out here. And really they're complaining about what God has done for them. And so Moses and Aaron do what they always do. They go to the tent of meeting and go to the Lord. And they're like, what do you want us to do with these people? And so the Lord tells Moses and Aaron, go back. And Moses, take your staff with you and speak to the rock. And I will make water come from the rock to give these people water in the wilderness. And so Moses and Aaron leave the presence of the Lord. And they come back in front of these people. And all of a sudden Moses feels this anger and this rage against the people for all that they have put him through. And Moses makes himself the center of the story And he, he, for this moment, considers that this is his kingdom and that they're coming against him. And he pushes the word of the Lord aside and he yells at them and asks, why are you constantly asking me to provide for you? Am I going to have to provide for you again? Is essentially what he says. And in that moment, Moses denies the Lord's provision for him and for the people of Israel. And so Moses takes his staff and he hits the rock twice and water comes gushing out. And the Lord says to him in that instance, because you did not tell the people what I told you, because you did not speak to the rock and let my holiness be put on display. Instead, you robbed me of glory by taking it on yourself to hit the rock and the water come out. Therefore, you're not going to go into the land that I have promised. You will die in the wilderness. The Lord has already condemned the rest of this generation to judgment, to die in the wilderness because of all the ways that they've complained against the Lord for what he's done for them. Namely, when they're ready to go into the promised land, they send 12 spies in and, and the spies come back and 10 of them are like, we can't do it. We can't overtake these people in Canaan. There's no way. Joshua and Caleb are the two who say, no, 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 with, with the Lord with us, we can overtake these people and go into the promised land. And so the Lord says in that instance... None of this generation over the age of 20 will go into the promised land, save Caleb and Joshua. And so now they're going to spend 38 years wandering around the wilderness so that that whole generation can die off before they get to go into the land of promise. And so we come here to Deuteronomy 34, what has been prophesied, what will happen to Moses. Let's look at Deuteronomy 34 together. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which faces Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan, all of Naphtali, 
the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the Mediterranean Sea, the Negev, and the plain and the valley of Jericho, the city of Palms, as far as Zoar. And the Lord then said to him, This is the land I promised Isaac, or Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your own eyes, but you will not cross into it. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the Lord's word. He buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, facing Beth Peor, and no one to this day knows where his grave is. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eyes were not weak. His vitality had not left him. The Israelites wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses came to an end. Joshua, the son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands on him. So the Israelites obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. No prophet has arisen again in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. He was unparalleled for all the signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do against the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his officials and to all his land, and for all the mighty acts of power and terrifying deeds that Moses performed in the sight of all of Israel. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this testimony of your servant, Moses. Who was faithful to complete the work that you had called him to complete. God, I pray that we would be faithful. Father, I pray that you would speak to us this morning by your spirit, that you would open our eyes to see the glory of the gospel of Jesus, that would you, you would open our ears to hear what you would say to us this morning. God, that you would remove any false sense of pride and ego from me as I speak, but that your Holy Spirit would speak through me and that we would look more like Jesus having encountered him in your word. It's in Christ we pray. Amen. Now, I'll be honest, as I, I began preparing um, to preach on the death of Moses, I was like, what, what do we talk about? Um, Moses died. There's your sermon. <laughs> and then as I read this text, and as I, I read some sermons from preachers from centuries ago, um, I realized there's, there's much to say about Moses. Oftentimes, we spend time at funerals when someone dies talking about the life of that person. Who they were who they were to the people in their lives, their family, their friends, their neighbors and co-workers. So this morning we're going to spend a little bit of time just talking about who Moses was and what his life says to us today. 
So this moment has been prophesied. The Lord said Moses is going to die before he goes into the promised land. He'll get to see it, but he won't get to go in. And in chapter 33, before we get to 34, Moses spends his last moments declaring blessings over the tribes of Israel. What he has done for his entire adult life was to serve the Lord in caring for these people. And in his last moments, as the Lord has told him to get ready to go up to the mountain to die, he spends his last words declaring a blessing over the people who so often have persecuted him, who have struggled against him. And he just wants to leave them with this blessing. And now we arrive at this moment Moses, in obedience to God, climbs up the mountain where he will die. In the same way that Abraham obeys God in taking Isaac to the top of the mountain to die, in the same way our Lord Jesus would walk up a mountain to die. Moses walks up the mountain to die. And just like Jesus in the garden had prayed, Lord, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. Yet not my will, but your will be done. Moses has prayed to the Lord. And every time Moses prays to the Lord throughout Exodus and Numbers, the Lord gives Moses what he asks for. But in this instance... Moses said, Lord, if it be your will, please let me go into the promised land. Let me lead these people into Canaan. And the Lord says, no, and don't ask again. And Moses never asks again. Because just like Jesus, Moses says, not my will, but yours be done. And so we come to chapter 34, and Moses faithfully, trusting the Lord, walks up this mountain to die. And the Lord shows him the promised land. We see at the end of verse 1, the Lord showed him all the land. And then he lists all these names that mean nothing to most of us in this room. But it would have meant everything to the Israelites who took this land. They would have known exactly where all of these places are. And so we have to remember, we are the second audience, not the first. The people of Israel were the first audience. They know all of these places. So they know exactly what the Lord is showing to Moses. And it's here that the Lord reminds Moses, I will be faithful to my promise. And I don't need you to keep my promises. You're going to die on this mountain. But I will provide for these people. Over and over again, the people have grumbled against God. And it was Moses who had interceded on their behalf to remind the Lord of his promise to Jacob. And the Lord, this one last time in his grace, is showing Moses that he's going to do what he promised. In verse 4, he says, I have let you see it with your own eyes, but you will not cross into it. 
Now, for fear of repetition, I'm going to go to a Lion King illustration, just like Greg a few weeks ago. Mufasa and Simba go up onto Pride Rock, and Mufasa says to his young son, everything the light touches will be yours. And in a great reversal of that scene, God takes Moses up to the mountain and says, in effect, everything the light touches is theirs. But not yours. Not now. This whole episode is an illustration of the biblical principle of first fruits. See, in Romans 8, Paul explains that in this life we groan as we live in a world that has been subjected to frustration. But that groaning is like the groanings of the one with the pains of childbirth, for we know what is coming. Paul says, we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. God was giving Moses a foretaste of glory divine, as we sing in the old song. He was showing him what is to come. And in the same way for us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ today, we have the Holy Spirit testifying within us of the hope that awaits us in Jesus. The rest that we now have, but the rest, the full rest that we still await. Moses will not get to enter the promised land right now. However, in Matthew 17 verse 3, we find Moses literally in the promised land as he meets with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Moses gets a taste of glory as he looks over the promised land, but we know later that Moses finds its fulfillment in Jesus. And while Moses' sin had earthly consequences, he sinned against God in Numbers 20 in the wilderness, His faith in God still brings him into the promised rest provided by Christ. Your sin, brothers and sisters, in this life will have consequences. Some light, some grave. But by faith in Jesus Christ, your sin will not keep you from the eternal rest provided in Jesus. There may be something else going on here for us to learn. Moses represents the law to these people. He was the one who went up on the mountain um, and received the law from the Lord and brought it down to the people. And so even in the New Testament, often there are references to Moses in reference to the law that was brought down from the mountain by him. So Charles Spurgeon writes, It was not for Moses to give the people rest. For the law gives no man rest and brings no man to heaven. The law may bring us to the borders of promise, but only Joshua or Yeshua or Jesus can bring us into grace and truth. If Moses had given them Canaan, the allegory would have seemed to teach us that rest might be obtained by keeping the law. But as Moses must be laid asleep and buried by the Lord's hands, so must the law cease to rule that the covenant of grace may lead us into the fullness of peace. How beautiful. 
How beautiful what the Lord does here by laying Moses to rest. He says, the law will not accomplish this. You won't get to enter the promised land by keeping the law. Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus, he's the one who can lead you into the promised land by grace through faith alone. And so in verse 5, Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab according to the Lord's word. I want us to focus on this title given to Moses, servant of the Lord. Now remember, Moses wrote the Pentateuch. Uh, this verse is a corrective to the possibility of some kind of overemphasis on Moses' greatness. For all his greatness, Moses is no more and no less the servant of the Lord. The key is that Moses served a great God. Moses wants to be remembered as the servant of the Lord. And what a servant he was. We read in Hebrews 11, By faith Moses, after he was born, was hidden by his parents for three months because they saw the child was beautiful and they didn't, they didn't fear the king's edict. By faith, when Moses had grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter and he chose to suffer with the people of God rather, to enjoy the, rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasure of sin. For he considered reproach for the sake of Christ to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt since he was looking ahead to the reward. Moses had been adopted into the most powerful family in the world. He was the heir apparent to the throne of Egypt. The greatest nation, the ancient world, was his to lead. But instead, he chose to suffer with the people of God. He chose to be the servant of the Lord. Do we spend our time scrambling for positions and power? Maybe you were born into some kind of influence, a family business that you lead, something that you own. Are you spending your life trying to hold on to power and influence and wealth and riches and build a kingdom here for yourself? Or do we hold what we have with open hands and say, I just want to be a servant of the Lord? All the days of his life, he was a servant of the Lord. He followed all of the commands of the Lord in building the tabernacle, he was faithful as a servant in all God's household as a testimony to what would be said in the future, according to Hebrews 3. Spurgeon writes, His reverence for the name of God was deep. His devotion to the cause of God was constant. If you remember the first time that the Israelites sinned by worshiping this golden calf at the base of the mountain, God says to Moses, Let me just wipe them all out and I'll start over with you. And Moses cares so much for the name of God that he rejects this proposal. No, no, no. What will Egypt say of you if you kill all of these people in the wilderness? 
All the people in Egypt will say, look at Yahweh. He just takes his people out into the desert to kill them. Moses cared deeply for the name of God. His devotion to the cause of God was constant. And his self-denial for the sake of God's people was unfading and unfailing. When the people grumbled and complained, Moses remained a servant of the Lord. When his brother Aaron sought to appease the crowd with idol worship, Moses intercedes on their behalf, asking the Lord not to make him a great nation, but to remember his promise to Abraham. Even as he comes to his death in Deuteronomy 33, he uses his last moments to pray blessings over the people who had been so quick to curse him. There was no prophet like him. We'll see in verse 10 through 12. Yet he would be remembered as a servant of the Lord. When you come to die, how would you be remembered? People say of you, he was a good man. She was a good mother. They were a kind neighbor. He was a really hard worker. Oh, that I would long to be remembered as a servant of the Lord. I pray that would be your aim. Let what be said about you at your funeral be, she was a servant of the Lord. He was a servant of the Lord. You may think this is weird. But I was so happy that I got to preach on Moses' death. Because I think death is important for Christians to think about. It's important for all of us to think about. Solomon wrote in Proverbs, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. It is good that we number our days. It is good that we think about what will be said of us when we die. Oh, that we be servants of the Lord. This verse ends in an interesting way. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab according to the Lord's word. According to the Lord's word. Now we know in part that that means he's dying without going into the promised land because God had said he would, according to the Lord's word, according to the prophecy that the Lord had already set forth that Moses would die before entering the promised land. But there, there may be more. Look with me at verse 7. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eyes were not weak, and his vitality had not left him. Moses, in writing uh, this, this chapter, and this verse in particular, is letting people know he did not die of old age. His eyes were not weak and his vitality had not left him. Moses was perfectly healthy. This wasn't an instance of Moses slowly climbing this mountain, a weak old man, and as he gets to the top, he dies from final exhaustion. No, essentially what we see here in verse 5 at the end is God kills Moses on the mountain simply by his word. You've come to your end. This is it for you.
the truth for each and every one of us is that we don't die of old age or natural causes. We die because the Lord said so. The Lord is the sovereign over life and death. The effects of sin in this world is not what ultimately takes us out of this world because God is sovereign over that. You die because God said it's time. No one dies too soon or too late. We die at the precise moment that God in his sovereign plan has designated. Our days are numbered. They are ordained before there is one of them. Moses died without seeing the full result of his life work. If you look down the list of the servants of God, you'll find that most of them die before the object which they had in view is fully accomplished. If we consider David thinking he was to build the temple, but he was not to build the temple. Solomon would build the temple. It is true that we are immortal till our work is done. Sarah and I often say this to one another since we've had Josephine. She is invincible until the Lord says it's time to go. I can do nothing to take her out of this world sooner than she was intended to be taken out of this world. He is the sovereign over life and death. We are not. So we are immortal till our work is done, but then we usually think that our work is something other than it is. It never was the work of Moses to lead Israel into the promised land. It was his wish, but it was not his work. His work he saw, but his wish he did not see. Let us be content to do our part in laying the foundation upon which other men may build in due course. It is according to divine appointment which links us with each other that one plants and another waters. One brings out of Egypt, another leads into Canaan. Are we content? Can we rest in the knowledge that we will not die until we have accomplished all that God has for us to accomplish? We have many works that we may do that we may wish that we can see the end of. But can we rest in the knowledge that God doesn't need us to complete his work? He's given us work to do, and when that work is done, we will go to be with him, and someone else will build on that work until Christ returns and gets all the glory. In verse 6, we see that Moses dies alone. Verse 6 begins with, He buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, facing Beth Peor. And no one to this day knows where his grave is. Now, there's some argument over who's the he here. Some people think it's Joshua came up on the mountain with Moses as his assistant, and he buries him. We have no reason to believe that because nobody knows where the grave of Moses is. It seems to say here that Moses and the Lord were the only ones present at Moses' death. And the Lord he had spent his life serving, his best friend, meets him on this mountain and lays him to rest 
and Moses dies alone. Somehow all of us die alone. Nobody goes with us when we die. We leave the rest behind. It's not like Noah and Allie in the notebook. That's not real life. At some point, you're going to die, and you're going to do it alone for yourself. Your mother can't do it for you. Your father can't do it for you. Those who might love you most and best can't do it for you. We die alone for ourselves, and God's eye marks the place. The one who matters most sees. He knows. People will forget you. Family will forget you. Your headstone's going to fade away over time. And the passing of years is going to level the mound of dirt. And that you ever lived is forgotten. But God remembers. This dust here is precious. God's eye is upon it. And the angels of heaven watch over it. For some day, out of the dust of the ground, out of the heart of the earth, out of the depths of the sea, God's going to speak life and resurrection to his people. And God buried Moses. And his eye knows the place. And his angels, for the thousands of years since, have carefully guarded it and watched over it. The people don't know where he's buried, but God knows. And so God will remember you. The angels will watch over you and in God's time and in God's day at the voice of the trumpet, at the call of the archangel, these who have been laid in the dust of the ground shall live again in his sight according to the word of the Lord. And the people wept. Verse 8. The Israelites wept for Moses in the plains of Moab for 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses came to an end. The people wept. It's proper that people should weep over Moses' death, for death is a result of sin. The wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23 As Christians, it's right that we should mourn death. I think it's a grave mistake that we make by changing our wording around funerals to only speak in terms of celebrating life. It is not wrong for us to celebrate a life well lived for Jesus. But it is a pagan thing to only look at this life. People who reject God, who reject a coming rest, that's all they can look to is what was done in this life. But we as Christians have a greater hope. And we can weep and we can cry and we can mourn over death because death is not natural. It's a result of the fall. And it is good and right that we should weep and mourn over death. We need to bring some of that back. We must not neglect mourning death and helping the world around us understand why we mourn death. Because we are a people who have been given life eternal. And no prophet like Moses has arisen again in Israel. Verse 10. No prophet has arisen again in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. He was unparalleled for all the signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do against the land of Egypt 
to the Pharaoh and to his officials, to all his land, and for all the mighty acts of power and terrifying deeds that Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. No prophet has risen again in Israel like Moses. See, the original audience here, the people of Israel, would be looking for the promised seed of the woman from Genesis chapter 3. Since the fall of Adam and Eve into sin, the people of God have been looking for the coming one who is going to crush the head of the serpent. And here is Moses, the servant of the Lord, who's come to lead them out of slavery, out of captivity in Egypt, into this promised land. And they must have been thinking through his whole life, this is the one, this is the Messiah, this is the one that's going to lead us into the promised land. And then Moses dies. And the people weep. For this was not their Messiah. Moses, in writing these last verses, would remind them that they're still looking. Moses wrote all of this. Before he dies, he tells of his own death. And Moses tells the people of Israel, no prophet has risen again like me in all of Israel, so keep looking. The deliverer that they need is still to come. And we on this side of the cross know his name, Jesus. See, as Moses was adopted into royalty and set to inherit the throne, so Jesus, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Just as Moses was called to lead the people out of slavery into the promised land, so Jesus, through his death and resurrection, leads his people from slavery to sin into the new heaven and new earth. As Moses strikes the rock in the wilderness to bring forth water, Jesus is stricken by God to bring living water to a thirsty people. But unlike Moses, who when tempted in the wilderness failed by hitting the rock instead of speaking to it, Jesus, when he is tempted in the wilderness, succeeds his temptation by speaking the word of the Lord to Satan. Jesus is the better Moses. Jesus is the deliverer we've been studying these last weeks. I'm sorry, Jesus is the better Moses. The deliverer we've been studying only serves to point us to the deliverer that we need. So as we come to the table of the Lord as we do each week to consider the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Would our gaze be upon the true deliverer? Moses was the servant. Moses pointed to Jesus. And so if you're a believer in the room this morning, if you have trusted Christ for salvation, we invite you to take of this meal with us. 
If you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ, we would love to talk with you about what that means. He stands waiting and ready to deliver you out of slavery to sin and into rest. But we would ask that you not take of this meal until you've put your faith in Jesus. Parents, we leave that up to you to decide about whether your children are ready to take this meal. As we prepare, Kenny's going to come. We'll sing a song. You can come to the front as we sing and take the elements back to your seat so we can take this together. But let us look upon the shed blood, the broken body of Jesus, and remember the cost of our sin and the rest that he provides. Let's sing.